feel that way, especially in here. Um, anyway, okay, let's go ahead and get started this evening. If you would open your Bibles to Exodus uh, chapter 28, verse 22, we're going to continue our study of the uh, high priest and the clothing of the high priest. Uh, once we get past the clothing, we'll actually get to the function, and uh, it's interesting kind of how these things fit together. But before we begin, let's just take a moment for prayer to get ourselves ready to study the Word of God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you again for your blessings, your tests, your opportunities. We thank you for your goodness and your magnificent grace. Father, I pray that indeed that as we look into your word tonight and we look at the garments of the high priest, it will lead us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. In Exodus 28:22, we've already seen in this chapter uh, the, the making of the uh, breastplate, some information on the breastplate, and the ephod. So this breastplate is this area... Um, around here, is that arrow showing up on there? Yes. Okay. And on this uh, ephod um, is the mounted 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they're mounted from right to left in their order of their birth. So you'd read it just like you would read Hebrew from right to left. So it would start with Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And then it go to uh, the first two sons of uh, Bilhah. So we, we see a sequence. We know what the sequence is uh, of the stones. And it talks about what each stone is supposed to be. They've, they make them pretty big stones on the artist renderings. How big they were, we don't know. But um, uh, looking at a stone that size in those things, like a diamond... One of number six is a diamond, and you're going, that's a pretty good chunk of money <laughs> that went on the front of these things. Some of these are called semi-precious stones. The semi-precious stones don't bring uh, nearly as much money, of course, as the, the precious stone category, but they're, uh, they still, to find something uh, that size is a pretty valuable piece of rock. Um, so in, in verse uh, 22, he says, And you shall manufacture on the breastplate chains of twisted cordage work in pure gold. So around this breastplate, let's see if I can find a better picture of that. Uh, it's not too good a picture. But there are chains here that will come off of these gold hooks from the breastplate. See, the breastplate is made of bronze. The gold hooks are going to be made of gold. And then it says uh, chains of twisted cordage work in pure gold. Now, pure gold is a really soft metal. 24 karat gold is a really soft metal. And it's, um, uh, it is for sale in various places of the world. And you look at it and go, boy, it's so easy to break. But yet, if you get one thick enough, it's not easy to break. Uh, and I went to a place in, uh, um, let's see, I think it was in uh, Dubai. Yeah, it's a Dubai airport. And they had probably 300 feet of booths, um, frontage booths, with a depth of about 50 feet. 
and that was the gold dealers to be found there in Dubai. In fact, in Dubai, you could stick your credit card in the machine, look like a gumball machine, and an ounce of gold would drop out of it. So it, uh, they had plenty of gold. It upset me. I read on the airplane going over there that we'd just given them $300 million to upgrade their airplanes or something, and I'm thinking, this doesn't seem to make any sense. But anyway... Uh, <clears throat> make these a twisted cordage work in pure gold. So you start thinking about it, and the twisted cordage work is to make it strong. Gold is a picture of deity. So when you see gold there, you see the you see the father at work, and then you see the um, uh, other things that are attached to it. Now verse 23 says, and you shall manufacture. On the breastplate, two rings of gold, and shall give, not really put, but give is nothan, is the word that's used here in the Hebrew, and it, it points out something that is done graciously. If the translators want to get real fancy and try and make it good English, that's what they do, but if they want to get the meaning, they'll translate it literally. The two rings on the two ends of the breastplate. So you can see these rings that are uh, mounted on the top part of this breastplate. And he says, And you shall give the two cords of gold on the two rings at the end of the breastplate. And you shall put or give the other two ends of the two cords on the two filigree settings. That literally is the interwoven cloths of gold. That's filigree. They put it in there, but... Nobody really knows what that is, but it's an interwoven golden cloth. And it says, And give them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. So these cords are going to attach here to this ephod, to this apron that is that is over the top. So that's what's, that's what's going to happen. He's giving a description. It kind of gets us confused, but... What it is is this little vest type of thing is going to go on over the tunic and the turban and then there are rings at the shoulder pieces and the cords will hold this breastplate in place down in front of his chest. So it is, it's really a very simple design but it, uh, it's confusing whenever you try to put it into, uh, into Hebrew. Of course to a Jew they went, oh yeah. And it's no big deal. It's to us uh, gringos that learn the language as a secondary language that it becomes, uh, becomes an issue. In verse 25, it says, And you shall give the other two ends of the cord two filigree settings on the interwoven cost of gold, and, put, and give them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front of it. Now, literally, it says at the exposure of its faces. It's the word mule, which means to expose, and pane, which is the word for faces, uh, the exposure of its faces. So where this thing is, um, go back here, where we uh, see uh, this ring and the cords that are there, this is what is called the exposure of its faces between these two. So this is an opening that goes from one side of the ephod to the other side of the ephod. And then in verse 26, you shall manufacture two rings of gold and shall place them on the two ends of the breastplate 
on the edge of it, which is toward the inner side of the ephod. So these two rings are supposed to be on the inside edge of this even ephod. And uh, it's, it's really interesting. The inner side of the ephod is the word eber. Now eber is the word we get Hebrew from. Hebrew is the word that means to pass over. So it says on the inner side, it's the crossover place. It is the passageway used uh, also in reference to where the lampstand was set up. It was a passing over. So they went through the veil, then they passed over from the uh, table of showbread across the uh, tabernacle to the lampstand, and they call that the passageway in between the two. Uh, <coughs> In verse 27, it says, And you shall manufacture two rings of gold and give them on the bottom of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod on the front of it, literally at the exposure of its faces once again. Should be two more rings down here on the bottom. Um, Close to the place where it is joined above the band of the ephod. So they're going to have this belt or sash that is there that goes around so this is supposed to sit above the the belt or sash uh, of the ephod of this vest like thing that is that is going on in verse 28 and they shall bind uh, this is the word rakas now you see the word uh, r-a-q-a-s and you see they're all capitals except the last one that's there and that's not um that's not a mistake. That's done on purpose because the, uh, there are two S's to be found in the Hebrew and you have to distinguish between them. There's the sheen, which is uh, the shalom type of word. And then there is the samic, which is a lighter S. And so the word one on the end of this is a samic. And so we use it with a small S instead of a, a capital S. This word's only used twice. The other place is Exodus 39:21. And it means to bind up in order to make it difficult to pass. Now, this is a verb. The noun is used one time in Isaiah 40, verse 4. Uh, there's another derivative noun that's used one time in Psalm 31:20, and it's translated conspiracies. So the word bind means looks at really an inseparable web. It is uh, looking typologically at the plan of God. Now, when you start coming to understand the plan of God, he's, he's given us a lot of things we need to look at, but his plan involves all of them. If we went through the areas of systematic theology, for example, we'd start with theology proper, which is the doctrine of God, okay? the Father. We'd look at Christology, doctrine of the Son, pneumatology, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, eschatology, doctrine of last things, hodology, which is the study of the Christian life. We'd look at all those and then we'd ask, how do these all fit together? So whenever we find this thing built into an inseparable web, God's plan comes from a lot of different viewpoints, but it's an inseparable web. It is strong, it is secure. Now it says you shall bind um, here they shall inseparably web literally the breastplate um, 
by its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord. So blue is a picture of heaven. So it's going to go from one gold ring to another gold ring with a blue cord that's going to hold it in place. So what's that going to tell us? It's going to look at deity and it's going to look at heaven which is the uh, heavenly side of uh, plan of God so when you find these two goal things connect eternity is connected between them is basically what it's saying uh, so and it's there and it's an inseparable web that they can't get out and what would you guess that would portray other than the security of the believer <clears throat> and the breastplate may not come loose from the ephod see so um it says that it might not be removed. So once they put this breastplate onto the ephod, it's there to stay. Now that's kind of interesting because it's got 12 tribes of Israel. It's got different things that are very securely made so that they won't come apart. I just uh, returned from a conference last night in Dallas that was uh, the, the Free Grace Conference. A Free Grace Conference is... Uh, they put free on the front of it because it's it's it proclaims that we believe that man is free to believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It hadn't got anything to do with the doctrine of election and things that, that come from, from there. And once they believe, they are eternally secure. That's part of the uh, basic crux of, of the free grace uh, alliance, and we have been part of that since its inception. But we were free grace before there was a free grace alliance. I mean, that's that's just the way we've we've looked at things. Now, <clears throat> what this is saying is that they can't be removed. And this thing is teaching once again the assurance of salvation, the security of the believer. So let's let's go through it and take a look. Now, the ephod represents Christ in the breastplate, the believer in God's plan. So the ephod is a picture of Christ. We're wedded to Christ, inseparably locked to Christ. That's what, which is Messiah. Okay, Messiah has always been known. The Messiah of Israel, it, his name was Jesus, was something yet to be discovered. But he's always been known as Christos, the Anointed One, the Messiah. That's that's who he is. Is our sound going weird on us here? Going in and out? Good. Okay. Believers are bound to Christ by his work as portrayed in attachment to the shoulder pieces. When you start looking at the shoulders of this, this thing, it's looking at what Christ did on the cross. He bore our sins in his body. He bore them on his shoulders. So it's looking at the work of Christ on the cross. Notice that this ephod is attached to that. And it's not just reading the church and New Testament back into the Old Testament, because the same theology is taught in the Old Testament. But it just wasn't fully understood, especially in 1445 B.C. when Moses was given this information. Progressive revelation takes a while to progressively reveal the plan of God. We find in... In uh, Genesis 3.15, the promised seed of the woman. And then you find flesh being put on the bones. Isaiah 7.14, the uh, virgin shall conceive and bring forth a, a child. You find Isaiah 9.6, that 
A child shall be born to us, and the government shall rest on his shoulders. He shall be called Eternal Father and Mighty God. He's going to be God and man at the same time. How can he be called David's Jehovah and he be David's son? There's only one solution to that. And they they needed to come to learn that. But as revelation increased, God gave more and more information. So by the time of Messiah, 1,500 years after after the Exodus, they should have been able to figure out who he was if they would have paid attention. Now the gold rings at the top on the outside portray the believer's knowledge of his salvation and that he's bound to the divine nature. Now this is pictured in the 12 tribes of Israel because obviously this was given to Israel. But how were the Jews saved? By keeping this law that Moses has given? Or by grace through faith according to the pattern of Abraham? They were saved by grace through faith. That's the way it is. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him righteousness. It's been the same salvation all along. Revelation 14, 6 calls it the eternal gospel. So it's saying that it is it has always been the same. Now, <clears throat> at the top of the outside, the believer's knowledge of his salvation and that he's bound to the divine nature. Now, 1 John 5.13, the second foundations book on the back table, that particular verse is used as our launch point. These things have been written to you believe in the name of the Son of God that you might know you have eternal life. So you can know it. That was portrayed here in the connection of of the breastplate to the ephod because a believer can know. 2 Peter 1.4, we've been beating that one to death on Sunday mornings. And 2 Peter 1.4 is about how you become a partaker of the divine nature. Once we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're entered into union with him. The Holy Spirit indwells us in the church, and we are a partaker of the divine nature. That means that we have an eternal relationship. And having a fellowship is something totally different. Totally different. I picked up another book that I just started reading. Uh, Dr. David Anderson uh, did the book and looks to be quite excellent. And he's drawing the distinction between relationship and fellowship. Because you have a child. That child is yours. That won't change. We become an adopted child of God. That's relationship. But fellowship is about the quality of that relationship and our quality the quality of relationship probably isn't as good as it could be and that that's a fact it's interesting I read into that book because when I drive alone I have a time to think and um, that's scary to a lot of people that Drew's got time to think about other things and then uh, when I got down there I uh, took out a piece of paper and started scribbling on it. So maybe one of these days, if it's got any value to merit, I'll show you what it is. But it was something that just been bugging me for a long time, seemed to come together, and it concerns the issue of fellowship, how we have 
a greater and increasing fellowship. The gold chains portray eternal security by being attached to the work of Christ. They're attached to the top of the shoulders. The exposure of the faces of the ephod portrays Christ as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, the Christ, this ephod, is Messiah. Here's the the breastplate that's got all the 12 tribes on it. They're eternally connected to him. It's not to come off. And... Uh, Hebrews 2.16 talks about that. It says, Assuredly, he does not give help or give living grace to angels. They don't need it. But he does give help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, <clears throat> Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, but more than that, he is our great high priest. And this high priest is a picture of our great high priest on heaven's throne. As we go through it, we're going to see more and more of that described in the book of Hebrews. Because chapter 5 through 10 actually talk about the high priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did. The rings on the lower side of the breastplate are attached to the inner side of the uh, breastplate, portraying the believer's ultimate reward, which is going to the Father's house. Because we are, see, we're ingrained, we're interwoven, we're put in this place not to be uh, taken off. John 14 uh, you probably remember that upper uh, upper room discourse night of the cross and uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am there you may be also I will come again and bring you to myself and <clears throat> here is this picture one of these days we get to go to the father's house which will be wonderful the rings on the ephod above the belt that's going to be the two right there the rings on the ephod above the belt attached by a blue cord to note the heavenly plan of eternal security. So here is a picture of heaven. Here is the gold. Here is God saying this is the way it is going to be. And John 10, 28 and 29, I love this, this passage because it's a picture of the sheep and the sheepfold and says those who are in my hand, there is no power in heaven on earth or under the earth. Take them away. And what about being in the Father's hand? And Jesus says, and no one's greater than him. <laughs> so if you want to question whether or not I've got any power, okay. But the Father, you want to question his power? Because to a Jew, that would be blasphemy to question his power. He says, you're in his hand. And there is no power in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that can take you out of his hand. We actually sing a song from time to time. Uh, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from the Father's hand. It's impossible to do that. This plan cannot be broken by the conspiracies of Satan. Mark chapter 3, verse 23, and he called them to himself. Why? Because this little word give that puts in here and makes it bad English, difficult to translate it into, it's a word of grace. It's a word of grace, and this plan is given by grace, and Satan 
can't break it. He called them to himself, Mark 3, and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? Because they were accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. He says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house won't be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but he is finished. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man. Then he'll plunder his house. So it cannot eat everything that Satan can do He's not strong enough to accomplish what he wants to do, which is tear up the plan of God. He would like nothing better than to have believers afraid as to whether or not they're going to be saved for for their whole life. We had conversations there, had some good conversations with some pastors. And I'm not the only one to come to the conclusion that uh, the Calvinist being basically a fatalistic group of people, or why uh, you're seeing the result of that theology in Europe right now, because there isn't any uh, evangelical Christians to speak of. They're like less than two or three percent, and Europe was was the bastion for Christianity from the time of Luther on, and yet what's happened with all those cathedrals? They've either turned them into museums or the Muslims have bought them and turned them into mosques. Now that's what's happened. Uh, We were kind of laughing. Mark Perkins, one of the VMI missionaries, is in Tahiti. He's a missionary to Tahiti, and everybody kind of laughs at Mark for being a missionary to Tahiti. But some of the most pagan places you can find on the planet are some of those uh, islands that are out there in the Pacific Ocean. Somebody talks about being a missionary to Hawaii and how rough that would be to be a missionary to Hawaii. Well, I can tell you, it is rough. Uh, With Dr. Muller's brother-in-law has a church on Kauai over there, and they meet under a tent, uh, the, the tent church. And it's, it's like pulling teeth to find anybody that's willing to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ because they have all of their Polynesian gods they, uh, which used to offer up animals or human sacrifices. I mean, it was quite a, quite a mess. Emphasized again is the fact that the plan is of grace. And that's where you find this word give that I've inserted in here. When you see that word give, you can say it's got something to do with grace. Now, Aaron's job is described in verse 29. And it says, And Aaron shall carry. I try to be accurate in here. There's other words in the Hebrew for carry. This is the word lift up. Because lift up means to go to a higher elevation. He shall lift up the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment over his heart. So when he gets ready to put this thing on, he's going to grab the breastplate and he's going to lift it up and he's going to put this breastplate over his heart. Now that's the one of the most precious places we have is over our heart, which tells us something about the security of the believer once again. Now, <clears throat> when he enters the holy place, 
So when Aaron puts on this garb of the high priest and he gets ready to enter into the holy place, he says, for a memorial. He's going to lift up the names of the sons of Israel. What what are those? Remember the 12 stones that are on the breastplate of the ephod? He's going to lift them up and put it on. When he puts on the ephod, what else is he putting on? Remember the two onyx stones up on the shoulders that had engraved the names of the 12 tribes of Israel also uh, from the youngest to the oldest of the sons of Jacob. So he's lifting them up. And memorial is the word zikron, and it refers to something that has already happened or an unconditional promise. Uh, and it denotes that the tribes for the most part are already believers. He shall lift them up for a memorial before the Lord continually. So, what picture do we have? And first of all, this is before he enters into the Holy of Holies. Let's go to this picture. And entering the holy place denotes the believer in time. So, we've seen various uh, elements of the um, tabernacle. And uh, we've seen the bronze altar. When someone comes into the outer court, there's only one way to get inside the tabernacle. Everybody's got to go through this one door that's on the uh, it, located on the east side of the outer court. The first thing they see is this bronze altar. And that's where the sacrifices are made. So before you ever get a chance or an opportunity to hear about the things that are inside of that tent there, the first stop is a bronze altar. Even for the priests that were going into it, they stood there daily offering up these sacrifices, but the next thing was the bronze laver before they got to the uh, tabernacle itself. Bronze laver right outside the door where they were to stop, look into the polished bronze hand mirrors that had water in it, wash their hands. They were to prepare. Now that's a picture of the fact they were required to wash their hands. I guess that would just easily tell us that we still sin after salvation. It wasn't like maybe we will, or they looked in there and go, I didn't sin, so they just bypassed this thing. No. Everybody stop. Wash your hands before you get ready to proceed into the tabernacle. Now, they would go inside of that tabernacle and, of course, go to the the different elements. And once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was located and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Now, this high priest, maybe we get a little better picture there, some de- some degree, but entering the holy place denotes the believer in time. Okay, they've been to the bronze altar, but are you getting ready to get involved in the Christian life? Well, here's a picture of the Christian life. Now, the Jews couldn't go in and out of there, so they had to listen to what the priest had to say. But the priest knew what it was because they went into the holy place on a regular basis. They had to replace the 12 loaves, they had to trim the wicks on the lampstand and offer up uh, prayer through incense on the uh, altar. Now, 
to correctly to function correctly, he must realize that Christ lifted him up at initial salvation. So he had to lift up the names of the sons of Israel. Now, had some conversations. If if you were a, a Calvinist, how many how many Jews that walked out of Israel in the conquest generation were saved? One of the questions that came up. With nothing, they don't want to answer them. How many Jews that walked out of, of Egypt were saved? Not even Moses was saved, was he? He didn't get to go into the land. How about the ones that didn't persevere to the end and died the sin unto death out there in the desert? Maybe the only two elect ones you could talk about was uh, Joshua and Caleb. Were the only two that walked out of Egypt and went into the promised land that was there. So it's another one of those pictures that people get and they don't think about a theology and and they end up with all kinds of wrong conclusions um, from that. But <clears throat> Christ lifted them up initially at salvation. Did they die the sin unto death? Yeah. Were they believers when they walked out? Well, they cried out to the Lord God and he heard them. First part of the book of Exodus. Kind of like read the chapter 1 verse 2 of the book of Corinthians and be sure they're saved before you start reading the rest of the book. Because that's what happened. They were saved, they were believers, but they were goofy. They never grew up. They never saw the function of the holy place come to fruition in their lives like it could have and should have. So... <clears throat> Lifting him up at salvation then develop a capacity to appreciate the work of Messiah. From Hebrews 5.11 says, Concerning him, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain, since you become dull of hearing. This is the New Testament author writing to the Jews primarily, and he says, We'd like to tell you more, but you just are dull of hearing. You're just not listening. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need, <clears throat> again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. Now, part of the problems when believers think they're a lot smarter than they are is that they uh, uh, get complacent and they get lazy. And the writer of Hebrews is telling these Jews who think they know it all already, they've already been there, you ought to be teachers, but you're not. You need somebody to teach you again the very basics. What would be those elementary principles of the oracles of God? What would you go back and teach them? Maybe about the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. Maybe about the sin that we inherited uh, from Adam every member of the human race, why would you go back and tell them about the Jews that walked out of Egypt and how they died in the wilderness? And why, why did they die in the wilderness? Because of disobedience. But see, before you ever got to Exodus, wouldn't you say, now Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. And then, by this time, when Hebrews is written, you've got... Uh, uh, about half of the New Testament written already. And so 
hopefully they had come to realize the book of Romans was already written. We know 10 or 12 years before the book of Hebrews was written. And so if you go in there and read chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Romans, you're going, hmm, faith like Abraham. He's talking about the faith of Abraham. And they're trying to add, a lot of them trying to add the ritual of circumcision to as a requirement for salvation. And he just says, just look at the chronology. Abraham had already believed God, chapter 15 which I believe he'd already believed God before God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And that's just a look-back verse. They call a pluperfect is what it is, and it looks back. Abraham had already believed God. God's not in the business of making promises of the Messiah and great nation status and all that to unbelievers. So Abraham was already got that promise when he was in Ur. So he was already a believer. He didn't get out and wander around for 20 years and go, oh, I need to believe in the Lord. No, he already was. And so it was a a look back. But he wasn't, his name was not changed from Abram to Abraham until Genesis 17. And with that came the issue of circumcision. So if you look at the sequence, guess what? It can't be part of salvation because even Abraham was already saved. He should realize that his correct function must involve study. You're going to be a priest in any dispensation or if you're going to be a believer in any dispensation. It requires requires study. It requires faith in the word. And its application is to shed the light and to pray. And that is taught by the table of showbread. Okay, the bread is a picture of the word. We all need the word. We have to grow in the word. Then he went to the lampstand. So why do you why do you grow in the word? So you can shed the light, spread the light. And then you go to the altar of incense, and that's all about prayer, and that's where we can really learn to pray and commune and fellowship with the Almighty. Like Aaron the high priest, Jesus doesn't forget our names. Now, Aaron only had 12 to remember. <laughs> he, he, said, he lifted up that it might be a memorial. He takes it in, so the 12 tribes are taken in as a memorial to remember these things. But don't you find it interesting that um, Jesus doesn't forget our names, our great high priest, and there's a whole lot more than 12 of us running around right now. I heard, I hadn't heard it until yesterday that the Earth's population was approaching 8 billion people. And you start thinking about how fast has it grown? Because when I first went to India in the early 90s, the world's population was around 6 billion. So now we're looking at 30 years later, a 33% increase in the number of people in the world. How many people need to hear about Jesus? About 7.5 out of 8 is about how many people need to hear about Jesus. The believer functioning correctly can determine the directive will of God. So if you're functioning correctly, you're studying the word, okay, you are seeking to be the light and carry the light with you and you're praying about it with those three elements, then um, you, you know what the will of God is, the directive will of God. Uh <clears throat> How do we know that this is the breastplate 
of judgment entering the holy place. When he enters the holy place from memorial before Yahweh continually. As believers, we should realize that Christ knows exactly what we're going through in time. Now see, when we look at all the pomp and circumstance and all the ritual, it is all designed to portray some very real, very real truths. And in Hebrews 4, uh, kind of a question I used to get people with because we, many of us opened up every Bible class with the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow. And it's a judge of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And I would ask, where is that located? And people would look down <laughs> instead of look at me. And I went, hmm. One of the main verses we consider so important to us well, what about verse 13? All creatures are open and laid bare before him with whom we have to do. That means that there's no place to hide. And then it's verse 14. So after Hebrews 4:12 and 13 comes this verse. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with mercy, with confidence to the throne of grace, so we can find mercy and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We need to realize he knows exactly what we're going through. This is what Aaron the high priest should have known, how much he knew. What he knew is there's 12 tribes here and God has made a promise to him. He made the promise to Abraham and he's entrusted with the spiritual care and well-being of these 12 tribes of Israel. That's what Aaron is, is uh, responsible for. But we're priests now. And you know, the Lord knows exactly what every one of us are, are going through. So... <clears throat> Here is the high priest of Israel. Don't forget the names of the 12 tribes. And could, could we be the high priest? Could we sit down right now and name all the 12 tribes? Write them all down? Well, uh, we may have stopped and think a little bit to get through all of them. But the high priest, they, he knew what they were. And the Lord knows all of them. He knew all who were believers. He had their name already written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. It was already there. He knew everyone else who would ever believe. And um, that means he knows your name. And you are a part of his family. No matter how bad you messed up, if you put your faith in his son, you're a part of his family. Now that establishes a permanent relationship but sometimes people have relationships but they don't have fellowship that goes with it and you know what he really wants he's glad you're in the family but he wants a fellowship with you he wants a fellowship in verse 30 it says and you shall put 
Here's the word give again. In the breastplate of judgment, the koshen, koshen mishpat. Koshen is our word for breastplate. Mishpat is a word for judgment. So it is a breastplate of judgment. And he says, you shall put in there inside of this breastplate, between the breastplate and the heart of the priest, and the um, uh, cloth that is there, you shall put the Urim and Thummim. Now, Urim is a word used seven times in the Old Testament. Its basic meaning is light. It comes from a cognate word that means to the east, which is the place of initial light. So Urim has the sense of the place of initial light. Now, why would that be important? Because if you got a big question to ask God, you're in the darkness. So wouldn't you want to go to the light to find out the answer? Now, that is what the Urim is about. And the Thummim, this word used 28 times in Scripture. And this is a, a beautiful word because this word means complete. It means blameless. It means with integrity. So you have these the Urim and the Thummim. They're supposed to go inside the breastplate. One of them says that you need light, and the other one says you seek it with integrity. And whenever the Lord answers, he answers you with true light, and he answers you with true integrity. And so you're supposed to take that if you're part of Israel, and you're supposed to go from there. But isn't that the picture of the believer? When he enlightens each and every one of us and he gives us the light of his word, aren't we supposed to carry that with us with integrity? Are we all sinners? Yeah. Are we going to keep sinning? Yeah. We're going to keep on sinning until we get a new body. That's the way it is. Hopefully they won't be as bad as often or whatever, but that's who we are as human beings. But how are we supposed to approach things? How, how, would you, how would you approach the word of God just knowing about the Urim and Thummim? You approach the word of God to give you the light, right? Because what is the word about? The light of the world. So you approach the word of God to give you the light, and then you go forth with integrity. What did the word tell you? That's putting the Christian life in its very basic, most basic components. And they shall be upon Aaron's heart. When he goes in before Yahweh. And Aaron shall lift up the judgment of the sons of Israel upon his heart before Yahweh continually. So when Aaron goes in, the high priest, he's supposed to take with him the the mess that the sons of Israel have made and place them in front of, of the Lord for mercy. When does he do that? We'll be told more later. But one day a year on the Day of Atonement, he takes a block of the blood of the sacrifice. He goes in behind the inner veil to the Ark of the Covenant and he sprinkles blood on that. As we get further into the, the study of this this uh, high priest outfits, you're going to see these little bells down here at the bottom of it, which I think is so cool because 
it made everybody pay attention because I'm sure the bells weren't cowbells. Uh, they are probably a little more dainty, but they, if you if you walked with bells all around the bottom of this robe, you're going to make a noise. And so every time he went into the holy of holies, because <laughs> if if the the high priest could die in there. So having the job of the high priest is not necessarily the best thing to have if you were in Israel back during some of their history. Because, uh, and as I've mentioned many times before, they often tied a rope to his feet to drag him out of there if God killed him right in front of the mercy seat. I don't know... That's one of the questions I'll ask when I get up there. Lord, how many high priests did you take out over the course of 1,500 years? And they had to drag them out of that out of that place. But um, and we'll probably sit around and laugh with them, and that'll that'll be good. But <laughs> um, so here he goes he goes in and. Um, the Urim, let's look at the summary now, was used to determine God's will for the nation when not specifically revealed by the word. It'd sure be nice to have those now, wouldn't it? I mean, if we could just buy those on eBay or Amazon and just order some Urim and Thummim, I bet you can order and get your own personal Urim and Thummim. Uh from from um, I'm sure one of those places is going to have some for sale replicas, but I am also just as sure they're not going to work like they did. Uh, it was used to determine God's will for the nation when not specifically revealed in the Word. Again, Urim's only used seven times, so it's not mentioned a lot, but it's something that stayed with the high priest, so you can count on it being conferred with a lot over the course of their their life. So, uh, Numbers 27:18 says, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him, a man in whom is the Spirit. Now that opens up some theological questions because the Holy Spirit was not in people in the Old Testament. They weren't there until the New Testament, but a few of them are actually said to be filled with the Spirit, and Joshua was one of them. And it says, and lay your hand on him. Moses, lay your hand on Joshua. Have him stand before Eliezer, the priest, and before all the congregation, and commission him in their sight. Now, here we are, Numbers 27. He's getting ready to commission Joshua with a specific task. And you shall put some of your authority on him, on Joshua in order that all the congregation of the sons of Israel may obey him. See, they are making him number two right then. He's the successor to Moses that we have already read ahead and know. But here, this is the book of Numbers. This is before the final sermons of the book of Deuteronomy. Moreover, he shall stand before Eliezer the priest, who will, shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim, before the Lord. So when Joshua has a question that he can't answer, he goes to the high priest Eliezer and he asks him what to do. And then it says, At his command, Joshua's command, they shall go out, and at his command they shall come in. 
both he and the sons of Israel with him, even all of the congregation. So here is the authority. Not all of Moses' authority yet. That would happen later. But at that point in time, Joshua was made number two. And he said, and here is a uh, anointing ceremony, if you will. And he basically told all of Israel, if Joshua says it, do it. But he also there told Joshua, if you don't know what to do, you go to the Urim and Thummim that Eliezer is. Get an answer. 1 Samuel 28, verses 5 to 7 says, When Paul, uh, when Saul rather saw the camp of the Philistines, because it was used to determine what was uh, not specifically revealed by the word. But if the one asking the question was disobedient, guess what we see here? 1 Samuel 28.5, Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servant, Seek for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, There is a woman who is a medium at Endor. And as you know, that was his visit with the witch of Endor, uh, which also raises a thousand theological questions along the way too. But you just take it and read it like it says it and then figure out what he's trying to tell you is what, what it does. But it was used to determine God's will for a nation. But whether or not it got, there was an answer depended on the one that was asking and whether or not they wanted truly the light and they were going to carry it with integrity. And see, what did Hebrews 4.12? He's a judge of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He knows exactly what's going on inside of each and every one of us. Since the high priest could not go in and out of the most holy place at will, the Urim would be used primarily on the outside. He wouldn't go into the tent necessarily to use it because the high priest carried it with him and he wasn't inside the tent all the time. Now the Urim could provide detailed explanations. Judges 1.1 for Samuel 10.22 that's a detailed explanation. That's when Saul was called to be king. And it was consulted and Saul was hiding. Saul didn't want to be king and it said and they consulted, where is he hiding at? And they and the Urim told them they found him. So, um, how about uh, 1 Samuel 23, verse 9 to, 9 to 12. And David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him. So he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. And David said, O Lord God of Israel, Your servant has heard for certain that Saul is seeking to come to Keilah to destroy this city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down just as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. And David said, Will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men to the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. 
Then David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. But notice he said, bring the ephod here. What's in the ephod? Because it was in the Urim and Thummim were inseparably connected to it. And so he got Abiathar. There was the inquiry that was made. And there was an answer. So as one example of how the Urim and Thummim worked. Hence it provided light for believers in time. That's what it was designed to do. Where there wasn't any specifics. Now... We are priests to God ourselves. We don't carry around a Urim and Thummim. But didn't we just read a verse that's come boldly into the throne of grace? Whenever that veil was ripped from top to bottom at the crucifixion of Christ, it opened up the phase two. That's the holy place with the most holy place, the holy of holies. So we can come in. Come on in, guys. Now that's a privileged position. That's a big part of what the mystery of God is all about. Is the fact that we can have Christ in us. The hope of glory. So, <clears throat> run out of time. We'll uh, pick it up here with point five next week. And uh, look at the work of the Thummim. And what it does. But um, uh, in any event, here we are. Moving through the high priest. Hopefully this has helped help some of your understanding about what's going on it is the clothing is symbolic it has meaning the meaning is important it deals with reality and then we get things like the Urim and Thummim the Jews out in the desert what do we do now do we attack do we not attack how do we handle this situation Lord and if they do that and they seek the answers so they can have the light and walk in integrity which is obedience. If that's what they're wanting to do, the Lord gave them the answers they wanted. Maybe they didn't. No, they, he actually gave them the answers they needed. They probably didn't want a lot of them, but he, he gave them to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your mercy, your grace, your love, all your blessings, all your tests. And Father, I just pray that you will nourish our souls with this portion of your word to see that your plan is so... Uh, intricately interwoven and so beautiful that it all comes together in a webwork that Father makes the, that shows the strength of your plan and still while giving your creatures volition Father that is amazing beyond what we can truly imagine but it is certainly awesome to think about we pray you'll nourish our souls with this so we can walk in a manner worthy of you this week in Jesus name we ask it Amen.